You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So we have made it. We have come to the final study sermon through the book of Ecclesiastes for the last three and a half months. We've been learning from this preacher, this professor, Solomon, about the vanity, the the mist of life in this fallen world. And he's been showing us that so that we would then turn to hope and place our ultimate hope in in God. And Solomon has acted uh, like a professor. This has like been his master class on life in a fallen world, and he's been sort of lecturing us for the last 14 weeks, and now he's come to the end of his class, and with these last few verses, he's going to sum up sort of the most important messages of his, his work and give us some, some parting words. And this reminds me, maybe you've had a professor like this, my favorite professor uh, in, in college. This was an undergrad. I was an undergrad in Bible, and his name was Dr. Brooks. And, and Dr. Brooks taught the introduction to Christian doctrine. And there was just, there was something different about Dr. Brooks that would, would draw students in. Yeah, he was, a, he was a learned man. He was smart, and he had his PhD in theology. He had all the book smarts and all the credentials to sort of teach the class a sharp theological mind, right? But he also had practical experience and a, a warm sort of concern for those he was teaching. So he was, a, uh, he was an army chaplain. He had traveled the world. He had been, on, uh, been a missionary. He had planted churches. He had adopted a bunch of children. And, and so he had this sort of wisdom and care that he brought into the classroom that drew students in. So he, was, he was gracious. He'd, cr- he'd critique the ideas of others. But he'd do it graciously and kindly. He'd speak of hard truths even when they weren't popular. But it was always winsomely. And in light of this, it made it difficult to come to the end of Dr. Brooks' class. Because I knew I'd have to move on and I wouldn't take his course again. And so I remember the, the last day of class and he's sort of summing up. Like here's the major things you need to know about Christian doctrine. He's giving some parting words. And I was both thankful for, for Dr. Brooks and, and all that I had learned, but I, I was also saddened because the class was ending. And you know, I think back now, and I've, I've had a lot of professors, and I have, there's, there's a lot of classes I've paid lots of money for and spent lots of hours in, and I can't remember a single thing. I'm just confessing. Some of you are like that too, right? But as I think about Dr. Brooks' class, I can think of things that he taught me that still inform the way I live and act and think and do ministry today. And those, those really are the best professors, right? Those who, who make a, a lasting impact because they're not just imparting knowledge, but they're fully engaged. They're imparting wisdom for the long haul. And so like Dr. Brooks in, in my life, Solomon is, is this sort of unique professor, he hasn't just given us knowledge, right? He's also taught us from experience, and he's, he's taught us with clarity. 
and he's taught us with great care. He's, he's shown us, he hasn't just told us, he's shown us the vanity of a life lived for the things of this world instead of a life lived in the fear of God. And now as he closes this book, we have to ask ourselves as we come to this final text, what will we do with the truths that we've learned here? Will, will, will the professor's lessons have this sort of lasting, transformative impact on our lives, leading to a life of wisdom? Or will we merely sort of just move along to the next class without practically heeding his wisdom? See, Solomon's parting words here, in, in, in these final six verses, he wants us to treasure this truth. Treasure this truth so that we may walk in faithful obedience through this vain life, which will one day end. That's what he's getting at here in these six verses. And to this end, what I, what I want to do this morning is draw out four very practical questions from this text. And these questions are, are applicable to us not only as we consider uh, all 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, but as we consider all of God's truth in Scripture. So here, here are the questions that will help us work through this text. Number one, do I delight in the truth? Verses 9 and 10. Do I delight in the truth? Number two, do I welcome hard truths, difficult truths? Verses 11 and 12. Then, number three, am I obeying God's truth in the fear of the Lord? Verse 13. And number four, am I ready to stand before the God of truth. Those are the questions for us this morning. Do I delight in God's truth? Do I welcome hard truths? Am I obeying God's truth in the fear of the Lord? And am I ready to stand before the God of truth? And friends, the way we answer these questions will determine how we walk through the mist of this life, the vanity of this life. Will, will the vanity of life allure us in or will we be satisfied in God? Will the anxieties of this life in a fallen world crush us? Or will we walk in the fear and worship of the Lord and in his grace? So, question number one. Do I delight in the truth? Verse 9 says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly wrote words of truth. Now verse 9 shows us that Solomon himself delighted in the discovery of truth. We, we see that in the great care that he took to gather this truth and, and present it. He himself was wise, but he also sought to impart that wisdom to others by arranging truth in a presentable way. And so he, wasn't, he didn't just say, hey, here's what I found. Here's a list of of uh, true propositions. No, he was creative in his presentation. He did it with great care. Right? Now, I think this is a great verse against boring preaching and teaching of the Bible. Right? Solomon's a great example of this. If we have the greatest truth, the most precious truths of God, then presenting those truths should be anything but boring. So Solomon took artistic, poetic care with how he presented God's truth because it was a delight to him. 
So he presented it delightfully. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying we should make Bible preaching or teaching a spectacle, you know, like the teacher in Dead Poets Society. Like if I started walking along the chairs right now, that'd be, that'd, that'd be really like showmanship. That's not what I'm saying here. I don't think that's what Solomon is, is, is advocating. But it does mean that those who handle the word of God should do so in thoughtful, careful, joy-filled preparation and delivery that aims to delight the hearts of the people in God. Solomon has not sought to just tell us true things. He's sought to show us the delight of the truth. Words of delight. Words of truth. But notice also, verse 9, that he didn't just study and weigh these things and present or study these things. He also weighed them against other supposed truths. You see that? He studied and weighed them. This gives us, what does that mean? This gives us this idea of those those uh, ancient weigh scales. Have you seen those? You put an item that you want to weigh on one side and then you have these other uh, measuring weights that you put on and you balance to see how much this item weighs. So Solomon is saying, listen, I weighed the truth and wisdom of God and his word and what it means to, to live before him in this fallen world and I've weighed those things against the vain claims of this world and I have found the truth of God far greater. And I found the claims of this world, the aims and goals of this world, that they will not satisfy you. They don't carry the weight they claim to. And so it's out of this discovery, his own delight in truth, his own weighing of these truths, that Solomon, verse 10, sought to then find words of delight and uprightly write words of truth for his hearers and for you and I. This was a work of delight for him. Now, friends, here's the simple question. Do you delight in God's truth? God himself delights in truth. David tells us in, in Psalm 51, verse 6, Behold, God, you delight in the truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, it may surprise you, but did you know that the longest love poem in the Bible is about the truth of God? Psalm 119, God's word. Verse 14 says, in the way of your testimonies, read truths, I delight as much as in all riches. You see, this is why verse 10 Solomon, it's, it's, it's intentional. He puts both truth and delight together. Now, I think we have lost this as Christians today. We often see truth as merely a, a way to battle against falsehood, right? And by the way, that's an important thing. We must certainly stand against uh, the lies of this world in a culture that says, you know, truth is up for grabs. You can have your truth and I have my truth. We, ha we have to stand clearly upon the word of God and say truth is not up for, for grabs. And the highest authority, the final authority, is the truth of God's word. Full stop. No caveats. Yet, I sense that we've lost the emphasis on the delightfulness of God's truth. It's not just true. It's beautiful. It's delightful. Now, 
We see this externally in the actual uh, literary form of the Bible. And we are also to embrace it internally to delight our hearts. And I think we see this in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Solomon, externally, he's written in prose and poetry and imagery to beautifully portray truths. I'll give you some examples. He could have just said, hey, listen, guys, it's really good to have friends. You should have friends. True statement. But what does he say? He says, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. It's a beautiful expression of, of the truth and beauty of community, right? Four, chapter 4, verse 12. He could have said, listen, there's a cycle of life and death that we all go through. Just live with it. Instead, he tells us the sun goes round and round the earth and never finishes its course. Chapter 1. He could have said, hey, listen, don't be stupid. That's really good advice. Don't be a fool. But instead, he says things like, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. See what he's doing? He's giving us truth, but he is, he is saying it beautifully so that we may delight in it. He wrote that way because truth is beautiful. Friends, the Bible, not just Ecclesiastes, the Bible is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It is a masterful work of history, poetry, narrative, and the like, all telling this majestic story. Now, why is it written that way? Well, friends, because truth is beautiful, and that external beauty is to be enjoyed and delighted in internally in our hearts. And here's the reason. Because the God who speaks these words is a God of goodness, truth, and beauty. You think about God that way? You say, yes, God is good. Yes, he's, he speaks truth. But when was the last time you thought God is beautiful and to be delighted in? And there is no one like him. Psalm 1 says, blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Isaiah 33, 17 says of the coming Christ, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Friends, do you delight in the truth? Do you delight in the beauty of who God is as revealed in his word? Not just do you have your quiet times and check, check the mark on the thing. Right? Not just do you hear the sermon and, and discuss it in, in your gospel community. Not just can you articulate the truths of God that are propositionally given to us. But friends, do you delight in the truth because you delight in God? And so asking that question just assumes something. It assumes that you are in God's truth, right? Let me encourage you, friends. If you, if you have a hard time with the Bible, we have plenty of helps to help you do that. But you know what often is needed, if you say, I, I can read the Bible, but I, this whole delighting in it thing is tough, it just takes time, practice, consistency, because you know God is good and true and beautiful. So you are saying, I am going to plunge into this book. I'm going to read the scriptures. I'm going to mark them up. I'm going to learn God's truth that I may delight in them and in the one who speaks them. 
Friends, do you delight in God's truth? It's so important as foundational for the second question. Because if you delight in God's truth, it will be a lot easier to welcome the difficult truths. And that's question number two. Do I welcome difficult truths? Verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So here we have another uh, creative, sort of beautiful presentation of, of a truth. This imagery here that Solomon uses. He, he says that the truth and wisdom of God in this book, and it applies of all of God's truth, is like a goad. Now what is a goad? Goads were used by shepherds in the ancient world. It wasn't a staff. They would have a staff, but they'd also have a goad when they were traveling and moving their flocks along a certain path. It's a simple tool. It's a staff with sharp nails in the end. Now, so I know, listen, animal lovers, it's okay. I know this sounds very painful, but they, they, they wouldn't like stab them and harm them. They would just sort of poke them and prod them along. So if you're trying to travel along a path, uh, uh, a sheep goes to the left, they just get a little prod, right, by the goad. They're goaded back in, they go to the right. And eventually, as that happens, they, they learn, okay, we need to stay on the proper path. And Solomon tells us these, these nails in, in the goad are firmly fixed. You can't remove them. You can't take them out. If, if you take them out, it's no longer a goad, right? It's just a, a stick. It's no longer effective in keeping the, the flock traveling along the path. You see the imagery here of the truth that Solomon is, is getting through? It's as if he's saying, listen, you can't dull or soften or try to remove the sharp edges of God's wisdom and truth. You can't do it. If you do, you'll wander from the path. The tool loses its effectiveness. You know this. Have you tried to cut something with a dull knife? right? Or write with a dull pencil? I'm a pencil guy. That's the worst. Dull pencils. Or can you, can you imagine a surgeon using a, a dull scalpel? Not only is that gross, but it's also ineffective, right? The tool becomes useless. Friend Solomon has, has given us sharp and difficult truths throughout this book, hasn't he? He has goaded us in, in many ways. He's shown us, for example, that virtually all of our world is wasting its life on vain pursuits. That's a hard truth. It's hard to hear for us, it's hard to tell our friends and loved ones, but it's true. He's told us that one day we're going to die. And every accomplishment, accolade, possession will disappear. And eventually will be forgotten. That's a hard truth to hear. He's told us that no matter how morally upright our lives appear to be, suffering and pain will befall us. That's a hard truth. He's, he's told us that life is not about us. We must humble ourselves and walk in the fear of the Lord. He's told us that every single one of us is unrighteous before God. There is not a single righteous person on earth who does good and never sins, including you and me. That's a hard truth. And Solomon tells us here, I think he does this to just remind us these aren't words from his mouth. He tells us in verse 11 that they come from the shepherd. He's saying, this isn't my truth. This isn't my opinions. This is from the shepherd, the God of truth. 
He is the one who is wanting to goad you and guide you along the path of righteousness through this vain life. Now he goes on to say in verse 12, My son, beware of anything beyond these, the truths of this book. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now I got nervous about this verse because I love books, right? I have the spiritual gift of buying books faster than I can read them. Anybody else like that, right? So there's always a stack somewhere, right? I'm like, dang, do I have to get rid of all my books? No, that's not what he's saying here. Uh, he, he's not saying that studying and reading books is wrong. Here's, here's the point that Solomon is making. He's saying the words of the shepherd are enough to guide us through life in this world. Here's the way Peter put it. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So here's what he's saying in verse 12. If you're searching for meaning and purpose in this endless study and publication and printing of books and research while ignoring God's clear revelation, you will weary yourself because you're searching for something that has already been revealed to you. Yet if you cling to the words of the shepherd, you will find rest and wisdom in this life. Right? Now, where is this shepherd, God, he's, he's, he's prodding us and goading us, where is he prodding us to? Well, he's, he's, he's prodding us away from the attachments of life in this fading world and into joyful dependence upon him. And that's what Solomon is saying. Listen, they're hard truths, but they're good because the shepherd is guiding you in the way of righteousness. Now, God's people are often, ever since sin entered the world, Tempted to try and dull the hard truths of Scripture. We actually all, we see this at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. God gave Adam and Eve the path of life. They had all they ever needed. And what did they do? They believed the lie that God was keeping something from them. They strayed from the path. They said, no, no, no. This, this truth that God has told us. Is he's holding, withholding something from us, so we're going to go graze over here. They rebelled against God. They considered the sharp edges of God's commands too restrictive for them. And sin entered the world because of it. Think of the Israelites. It's interesting to know the, the Israelites never fully said, hey, guess what? We're just going to decide to commit idolatry today. That's never what happened. No, they said, oh, we love God. We are going to worship God, but as they're surrounded by pagan nations, they thought, you know what, it's, it's okay just a little if we go graze over here. They started mingling in other spiritual practices. And then eventually, it led to their destruction. And they abandoned God completely. And friends, we're tempted to do the same thing in our day. And there's so many examples of, of this, but think of, think of the hard truths in our culture. I'll just pick one. That's hinted at at the end of our passage today. Think of the reality of hell and coming judgment for those who don't know Christ. That, friends, is crystal clear in Scripture. There is no way around it. Yet our culture says that is unloving, antiquated, backwoods, and ridiculous. If you believe that, you're crazy. So we comfortably talk about the loving welcome of Christ, as we should, friends. 
but we, we kind of sort of keep to the, to the back of our minds the fact that Revelation tells us Jesus will return to judge with a sword coming out of his mouth in a robe dipped in blood. That's not as palpable, is it? Right? So, and I feel it in my heart too. When I'm talking to my friends, I happily tell them about the, the love and mercy of Christ. But what about judgment? Friends, we can't dull the edges of that truth. Have you heard of the, the, the Thomas Jefferson Bible? Raise your hand if you've heard of the, the Jefferson Bible. We've talked about it in here before. Right? Thomas Jefferson took the Bible and he, he cut out all the parts he didn't like. Right? It's convenient, isn't it? And so he's left with fragments of the four Gospels. That's it. And of course, if you read those, there's no miracles. There's no resurrection. There's no talk of judgment, no supernatural no nothing. Now, and you and I hear that and we're like, okay, Tommy, that's kind of crazy. You can't just, you can't just cut up Bibles to, to make them say what you want them to say. But friends, I'll be honest with you. The Lord brought conviction to my heart this week as I was thinking about how ridiculous Thomas Jefferson was in doing this. I was, I was self-righteously judging him in my heart and the Holy Spirit reminded me, hey, Kevin, every time you refuse to submit to the truth of God's word, because of your preferences, because you don't like it, you do the exact same thing. Just because you didn't take the, the time to craft a Bible with some glue and a Sharpie doesn't mean you too don't sharpen or, or dull the hard edges of Scripture. Friends, we do it all the time. So here's a, here's a simple question to ask, to, to evaluate this in your, your own life. Ask yourself, when was the last time I submitted to the word of God even when I didn't like what it said? David Gibson comments on this. He says, if we do not like what the Bible says because it confronts us, then we'll always find some way of changing what it means so it lines up with the world we want to live in instead. He says, don't domesticate your Bible Live in God's word and realize that because we are sheep, we will always naturally seek to develop our own goads to poke and prod the Bible instead of letting it poke and prod us. You'll know that you know God when sometimes what he says makes you weep as he humbles your pride, reverses your expectations, upsets your priorities, offends your behavior, challenges your thinking. Friends, we must let the, the sharp edges of God's word poke and prod us. It is an act of the love of the shepherd that we may follow him as he's called us to. Question number three. Am I obeying God's truth in the fear of the Lord? Number one, do I delight in the truth? Number two, do I welcome difficult truths? Number three, am I obeying God's truth in the fear of the Lord? Verse 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So here, here's the summary application of the book. He says it's the end. This is it. This is the concise answer to the question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? To fear the Lord and keep his commandments. That's how he sums up the entire book. Now we've seen this, this concept of the fear of the Lord all throughout Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 14, we read, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. 
nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people may fear before him. Chapter 5, verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. We've established before this doesn't mean... This doesn't mean being scared of God, but instead means a worshipful trust of him. It's a simple definition of the fear of the Lord. Or we could rightly paraphrase this by saying, the whole duty of man is to worship and obey our creator. In the words of Charles Bridges, he says, the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence. It's a good phrase for fear. Affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to the Father's law. And Solomon says this is the whole duty of mankind, meaning there's no compartmentalization of this. Right? We don't get to say, okay, I have my church life over here. Right? That's, where I, that's where I go to church. That's where I go to Bible studies, and that's where I worship and obey God, but then I have my personal life over here or my career over here, and I can sort of do my, my own thing. No, God's Word says there is no such distinction. Your duty as a Christian and privilege is all of life for all of God's glory. That's what verse 13 is calling us to. In other words, every duty and responsibility that you have is ultimately a duty and responsibility to worship and obey God. Whether that's in your home, whether that's in your job, whether that's in your hobbies, your finances, whatever it is. Fear the Lord, keep his commandments. And notice the order here. This is so important. Fear comes before obedience. Worshipful trust comes before keeping the commandments. To use a very popular biblical image of plant growth, the fear of the Lord, the worshipful trust of Him, is the soil out of which our obedience grows. And this is so important because it's the, this is the unique message of Christianity. Every other religion says, do you want to live a good life? Okay, walk in moral righteousness. Be a good person. Then you will be accepted by God or whatever force. That's the way of man-made religion. And that, friends, that will either crush you in despair because you know you're terrible at it. Or it will consume you with pride and self-righteousness because you think you're good at it. Either way, it's not biblical Christianity. Worship of God must lead to obedience, not the other way around. Faith in God must lead to joyous work for God. So the fear of the Lord is the fuel for keeping his commandments. The order is extremely important for our faith. Some of you are here this morning and you're under the burden of that that second phrase, keep his commandments. You've, you've ignored or forgotten the first part about reverential trust and fear of the Lord. His acceptance of you in Christ. And so you're plagued with guilt and shame at your own failure. Or you're walking in self-righteousness as you attempt to keep the commands of the Lord. And friend, listen to me. 
You cannot obey your way into relationship with God. That is so important when we hear the commands and wisdom of Scripture. You can't obey your way into the fear of the Lord. If that were possible, there would be no need for Christ to come. You could save yourself. Yet Christ came to do what you and I could never do, to fully keep the commandments of the Lord, to fulfill the law, then to die in our place, taking the punishment for the law we broke, rising from the dead so that all who trust in him, all who fear the Lord, not depend on themselves, are forgiven and the slate is wiped clean. So friend, if you're, if you're depending upon your own ability to keep God's commands this morning as a, a pathway into the worship and relationship with God, then I urge you to turn to Christ in faith. You heard it simply and clearly in our catechism, right? Receive the gift of salvation in Christ alone. Hear the words of John 15. It says, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, not whoever obeys, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now others, on the other side, you're, you're more prone to another misunderstanding. You're tempted to say, oh yeah, I've, I've trusted in the Lord. Uh, you could say, I fear the Lord. He's accepted me. Yet, you've neglected to walk in obedience. Maybe you're tempted to say, does that really matter that much? After all, I'm forgiven. And you've ignored or forgotten the reality that just as a healthy rooted tree bears healthy fruit, so the one who fears the Lord will walk in obedience to his commandments. As James says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So if there are no marks of obedience and desire to keep the commandments of God in your life, then I urge you, friend, turn to Christ in faith. The one who, who died for you, that you may live for his glory, that you may keep his commandments. Hear the words of 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We need the Holy Spirit's help to show us, like, which way do we err on either side of those? Maybe we, we're so focused on keeping the law that we neglect to remember the grace of God and the fear of the Lord. Or maybe we're so, we're so focused on our, our faith in the Lord that we've failed to see that that faith should produce obedience to his commands. But friends, we must obey God in the fear of the Lord. And then fourth and finally, final verse, final question. Am I ready to stand before the God of truth? Verse 14, here's another hard truth. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the final phrase of the book. And in, in this phrase, Solomon draws our attention to the future now. He's done this already before in the, in the book by reminding us time and time again that we're going to die. But here the focus is not so much on death, but on judgment. And as we worship and obey the Lord, we're to do so with this reality in mind. One day we will stand before God the judge. 
Now, there's a sense in which this is encouraging, right? Because one of the struggles throughout the book that Solomon's drawn out is there is this injustice and oppression where there seems to be no relief in this life, right? Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Well, with this verse, Solomon is reminding us that may be true now, but remember, friends, one day every act of injustice and oppression will be judged by the righteous one. That's meant to give us hope, friends. But it's also a warning for us, right? Because if you start to follow that logic, you start thinking, wait a second, if every single secret thing is going to be judged, if everything is going to be brought to light before the judge, then that also means me, right? My thoughts. My actions, my evil deeds. And so this also an exhortation for us to examine our lives and say, am I prepared for that day? Now, psychologists have, have done a bunch of studies and have shown that one of the most common dreams people have is the unprepared dream. Has anybody had that dream? Like, you're gonna, yeah, see, hands are going up, right? I have it often. It's like I ha- I'm supposed to take it, you, you sh- you're in a test, and you're like, there was a test? Oh my goodness, I'm not ready for this test. Or you're standing up before your colleagues, and they're like, we're ready for the presentation, and you're like, uh. Or for me, it's like, all right, time to preach the sermon. Oh, what? What's, what sermon? Right? I, you know, it's terrifying. It's anxiety-inducing, right? Very, very common dream for people. And you have absolutely no idea what's going on. And then it's like, a, it's like a sigh of relief when you wake up and you realize, oh my goodness, that was just a dream. But if you did have a presentation coming up or a test or a sermon to prepare or what have you, then you start, it's actually helpful because you're like, maybe I should get ready for that, right? Well, Solomon ends Ecclesiastes by sort of grabbing us and saying, listen, God's judgment is real and it's coming. For every single person. And that is not a dream you will wake up from. It is a reality. So be prepared. And friends, here is the good news. For those who are in Christ. For those who have trusted in him. That day, whenever it may be or however it will happen. When our lives end and we stand face to face with God. Is not ultimately a day to fear. Because Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has taken death and he's turned it into a doorway. Right? It's not a day to fear for the Christian. This is why Paul says, I love Paul, the crazy missionary of the New Testament, contemplating, am I going to live or am I going to die in this prison? He says, for me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Or Hebrews 9, 27, verses through 28 says this. Just it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Right? That's what Solomon's saying in verse 14, verse 28 of Hebrews 9. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. See, friends... The author of Hebrews says, Christian, that's you. So how can you be ready for that day? The most important question is, are you in Christ? Have you trusted in Christ?
Now, the temptation for the Christian is to look at verse 14 and say, oh, man, I'm in trouble. Because you're saying, Solomon, that he's going to bring up all of these secret deeds. And you have no idea how dark my thoughts can be or what I've done or what I've said. And you're saying, is he really going to bring this record of debt up to me and list it back? And the answer is, yes, he will. I don't know how that will work, but the scripture tells us time and time again that we will give an account for everything. But friends, here's the encouragement. For those who are in Christ, as you hear that record of sin on that day, longer than you could imagine, you'll also hear the loving Father say, Colossians 2, I've made you alive together with my son Jesus having forgiven all your trespasses. And how did I do that? Listen, I took this record of debt, all those secret thoughts, all of those sins, and I set it aside. I canceled it. Do you know how I did that? I nailed it to the cross of Jesus Christ. So you bear it no more. Welcome home, son. Enter in, daughter. So friends, you see what Solomon is doing here. As we, as we take a step back and see the whole story of Scripture, one last time, Solomon is depressing us into the dependence upon God. He's telling us the hard truth. Judgment is coming. Showing us every evil deed will be brought to light. And that is meant to push us to be wholly dependent, not upon ourselves, but upon Christ who paid the debt for such deeds. Then and only then are we ready to stand before the judge. And so it's with that that we end our study of Ecclesiastes. What will we do with these truths? With what we've learned here? Our prayer should be that the professor's lessons have a lasting and transformative impact on our lives. May we, by, by God's grace, delight in the truth. Embrace the hard truths. Walk in, in worshipful obedience to the truth through this vain life so that we will be ready to stand before him on that final day. Let's pray together.